It's that kind of weather, suitable for the week that we're in, in British politics. And here we are in South London Loft, talking to our next guest on, um, as the actress said to the critic. So I'm the critic, Sarah Crompton. And I'm the actress, Nancy Carroll. And our guest is Sarah Hemming, who is the distinguished theatre critic for the Financial Times. Welcome, Sarah. Welcome, welcome. Lovely to be here. It's nice that we're ganging up on Nancy now, I think. <laughs> yes, two critics. <laughs> it's, it's the first time Nancy's had two critics in the room with her <laughs> one, so anything could happen. Um, Sarah and I came together over a banana... On, a, on one of the very rare occasions that um, a group of critics actually went out of London. We all went to the Manchester International Festival, didn't we? We did. And we discovered that we have a, we share a penchant for banana with our cereal in the morning. And we wanted one banana between two. So we, um, yeah, very frugal, very thrifty. <laughs> actually, I think we came together before that on another food Item. I think it was the egg sandwich it's at the Rose Theatre in Kingston. It's true. There was I no was... sandwiches to be had, so we shared one. Sarah, very kind. I was standing there, sort of, we were about to go into quite a long show, and yeah, the sandwich shops were closed. There's a book here. You could start each <laughs> chapter with, with your food sauce. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah very kindly gave me one egg sandwich. So we both went in with one egg mayonnaise sandwich, so it's true. We've shared sandwiches and bananas. With Chris. Do you like it with Chris? I do, yes, and mayonnaise. I mean, we. Um, it is a challenge, actually. Eat, I mean, that, it's not a serious challenge, as challenges in the world go, but eating as a critic is always a problem. You either eat an egg sandwich or something before the show, or you eat pasta at 11 o'clock at night, yeah. or you subsist on crisps, basically. and Which is more or less what we do. And neither way does it kind of really work as a critic. I mean, you're always out sort of eating far too late or far too early. Yeah. It's quite tricky. I suppose actors have that as well, actually. Yeah, very much so. And there are some shows you'd like to do a little bit hungry and, and some shows you know that you can survive to the interval. And then there are other shows that have eating in them. And you can tell when an actor has held off having dinner as to have, with how much enthusiasm they dig into their show meal on stage. It's hilarious. <laughs> we had one years and years ago where we all had a slice of chicken during a dinner party. And, and some people just devoured it in about three seconds and others sort of nibbled at the edge because they had actually already eaten. It was this very is funny. Because so I'm fascinated by food on stage. I remember the Lyric once, the Lyric Hammersmith once did a show about the rivalry between the Indian restaurants and they fried onions on stage and I was oh. like, forget animals, forget children, onions are your big enemy because you could see the whole audience just sort of yeah. stop doing that and I, I get. I mean, if people don't eat their food on stage, because you're often hungry, so you're yeah, like, yeah. Are, you, uh, yeah. are you are you leaving that then? Because yes, I know. <laughs> we've only had half an egg sandwich. Wasn't there a wasn't there a show at the court that Dominic West did where he had to gut a fish and then oh cook it? Do you remember it? I don't remember that. I do remember Carrie Mulligan told me when I interviewed her that we were talking about David Hare's Skylight. And uh, in that, she has to cook a spaghetti bolognese. Mm -hmm. And yeah. she said that the challenge of that, trying to cook a spaghetti bolognese, not cut your finger off, remember the dialogue, yes. get everything right because they then have to eat it. So she is sort of cooking it live. Yeah, yeah. And then she said she also, she, I think, I don't think I've misremembered this, but she said the same thing happens with the Balti thing, of, of losing the audience because she suddenly realised that everybody wanted to eat the spaghetti. <laughs> 
<laughs> More than they want you to listen to. There's a beautiful bit at the end of Joe Penhall's play, um, Not Blue Orange. Oh, my goodness, what's it called? It's about a brother looking out for his younger brother who's got um, mental health problems. And at the oh, end, yeah. he cooks an omelette with him. Right. And it's this oh. beautiful thing of them coming together. I mean, food on stage can be so... I mean, it's dangerous, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's so eloquent often. It's I think it's wonderful. It's visceral and, and, and actually it, it can be the making of it because it then becomes part of the immersion of, of the, you know, the live event that's happening in front of you. I remember Street of Crocodiles at the Young Vic that Complicity did years and years ago. They filled the theatre with the smell of soup. Right. And I, can't, oh, yeah. I think it was tomato soup. I can't remember whatever... Uh, whichever flavour but it was it was part of it it was part of this childhood memory and it was just beautiful yeah I've done it with I with the certain things where you have to really really negotiate when you eat it if you know that you've got a line coming up <laughs> because you can't have it I had one the best uh, and 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 also most awful thing uh, was that when I was doing the magistrate at the national I had to eat enough biscuit that when John Lithgow came in, in my shock, I could spit the biscuit <laughs> across the Olivier. But I had to talk and munch, so not swallow, but not take in too much that I couldn't speak, but then also have enough of a, a ball of biscuit that I could spit. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, all, it was all a nightmare of my own making, because in rehearsal I was like, oh! Genius, genius idea. <laughs> and then it was like, yes, 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 go for it, go for it. So it was a big box of biscuits that stage Brilliant. management have put out that then became a prop. And it became how much biscuits, and it ended up being about half. You couldn't really do more than half. But then if I didn't have enough and I'd gone, if I'd started eating too early, I was like, oh, shit, shit, there's not going to be enough to get across the stage. <laughs> <laughs> it was very good. I yeah. remember when the national did. Um, was it craved or cleansed? Which is the Sarah uh, cleansed? Pain, the one where the one where they have to eat a lot of chocolates. They said the prop people said that they had to provide so you want your actor to get to the end of the run you know still still able to sort of do their trousers up <laughs> so, yeah. so they, they came but I think they had grapes dipped in sort of chocolate uh, because obviously if you ate a box of chocolates a whole every night so it's, yeah. it's so you interesting food on stage yeah. And yeah then the Richard Nelson yeah. built all those wonderful wonderful plays that he wrote about America every one is set round a family meal which they bring in and cook in front of you well, that you just end up starving. Did you see the the play that Joe did that uh, Michael Boyd directed called The Big Meal? The Diana Quick was in and um, uh, Kirsty Bushell and Lou. Oh, it was brilliant. It was all and it was um, set around family meals. But ultimately the food was served to the family member who that was going to be their last meal. And the, the way that they designed it in the end was that because it was sort of this technicolor moment, they decided to make the food technicolor. So they pumped all this stuff full of food dye. Oh, so these gosh. these plates would be brought on sort of luminous blue and orange and red, and then everybody would sit and watch, and then the character wouldn't return after they'd had the meal. It was sort of extraordinary because it then followed the generations through. But it was just the idea of having to eat this sort of food dye pumped heavily carbohydrate 
you know, design meal as part of the show and everybody looking at it. And it, it was fascinating. It was yeah. really fascinating. You see, what I love about this podcast is you never know where it will go because here I was thinking we're going to have a very serious conversation about no, the, no, no, it is the role serious. of theatre criticism, where <laughs> we're going. And in fact, we've ended up talking about food on stage, which, of course, is the joy of these things. Well, I could ask Sarah... Uh, how you got into criticism in the first place? Um, well, eons ago, like back in the dark, dark ages when I was a student, like many students, I was I worked on the student newspaper, but I was up at Edinburgh. And because of the Edinburgh Festival, there was also the students carried on in the summer and they produced um, a little magazine called Festival Times, which covered the festival. I started working for that and I kind of fell in love with it. And after university, I and a couple of other people set up an actual professional magazine, which is still going, the list. So it was oh, like a kind yeah, yeah. of time out for Edinburgh and Glasgow. So we did we did all of it, basically. We sat around the kitchen table and we planned it out. We hired the, the writers, we designed it, we did everything from the cover, the cover of the front cover lines to the headlines to commissioning the work to writing the work it was because it was back in the olden days when we didn't have the internet which is just impossible how do we live I can't actually remember but if you wanted to know what was on you needed a listings magazine so it was a listings magazine with features and reviews and I started covering theatre because I I did love theatre I mean I you know I came at it two ways one way was through finding I loved writing and I absolutely love interviewing people meeting people going to see shows I mean I just love it I I got a bug then that was um, some years ago and I haven't got rid of it yet you know I still love theatre I absolutely adore it you also um, acted a bit didn't you which I didn't ever do I I acted very badly very badly indeed (laughs) I tried (laughs) I tried joining the university theatre group and they were like everybody was very stylish and good and I really wasn't and then I was in a, a phenomenal thing, I think. I had a year abroad and I was in Germany and I was in a English-German production, the Freiburg Shakespeare Company production of Hamlet, Amazing. which was a multinational cast. Hamlet was very intense German guy. And then there were people from all over the place. Polonius, I think, was Icelandic. I learned everything by... You know, just by the... So he's... Like, every time I see Hamlet, I hear, you know, give him this money and he's not Ronaldo. <laughs> <laughs> because that's how he said it. Um, and I played the ghost. <laughs> you, um no, I had... I sort of... There was me and another, uh, another girl and we did a conceptual ghost using my mic. I'm so grateful that, you know, people hadn't started filming things and Facebook didn't exist back then because I cannot imagine how, how terrible it was. Our Claudius really fancied Gertrude and in one... It helps, doesn't it? I think that helps. Yes, but in one rehearsal, he came in and he put his hands on her legs. After It's after the scene where Hamlet's visiting Gertrude in the closet and he said... Instead of there's matter in these thighs, he said, there's matter in these thighs. (laughs) (laughs) Every night we would just, we get to that line. Oh my God. I can't imagine. So some of my dear friends came from the place I was living in Germany. And afterwards I was like, what do you think? And they said, 
we did not realise Hamlet was so funny. (laughs) That was my acting career. So I think I realised quite quickly that perhaps wasn't going to make it. My mime conceptual ghost wasn't going to get me um, onto the West End stage. And anyway, I I just wasn't very good at it. But I I retain from that, I suppose, an incredible... um, This is going to sound mushy, but it's true. I have incredible respect for actors, writers, directors. I think it's very hard to do, really hard to do well. And so bold. I mean, when you see a performance, for instance, like Billy Piper's Yerma, and you just think... Which where she tore her, I mean, it was an astonishing physical performance. Yeah. And I watched it and I couldn't get yeah. it from my seat afterwards. Yeah. I thought, how do you do that night after yeah. night after night? And I, so it did give me, I suppose, I discovered I was no good at it, but it also gave me a sort of, yeah, an understanding, a little understanding anyway, of how hard it is and what a brilliant thing it is when it works yeah um so that's my long sorry rambling long (laughs) i can tell you i got into national pest but that's another long story so i will cut that off but i think just before you talk about that i think i think interestingly one of the so there's a kind of which i've talked about very briefly before there is a kind of critics code that though obviously we often see each other night after night we never really talk about productions when we're watching them because then you end up with an overall view of something which you really don't want to do you don't want to take the texture out of different people's reviews but then you do have this thing where you discover that you quite often agree with a critic you know another critic and sometimes you and the other critic are on a limb together and sometimes you're part of the you know the gang sometimes you're on a limb on your own um but sarah and i the other thing that has bound us together is that we we very often agree we're having a period of not agreeing about things at the moment i think <laughs> yeah i've become hard and cynical but i think i think and then got the quality so what i was going to go on to say really is that the quality that unites us all is a kind of mushy kind of love of theater i think we're all quite excited about it as a um, something and and how you know as a form that gives you all kinds of different possibilities and we like the way that people we like watching and experiencing the way that people make theatre yeah I mean and I think I think for me the moments you know the shows that really stay with you you know because we famously sit and write notes um, <laughs> you would be hard pressed to read mine but um, are the, the shows where you just you just you can't write notes because you're just too too trans you're just too in the moment so you know something like that billy piper performance yeah. um i remember the end of jerusalem the first time i saw yes. it and mark rylance was stood there banging on this drum summoning the giants and the you know the ancient giants and i remember the hair going up on the back yeah. of my neck and i was thinking don't do that they're gonna get up um you know and with those moments when you really you know, you're really, th- those are the things that we we look for. Those are the, and it's, it's I mean, I, I'd say it's, you know, really the best art form, certainly one of them, um, when it's like that, because it's, you're all there in the same space. Um, I think that's something that really, really came through, didn't it, during the lockdowns, you know, just how essential that is, you know, that, that connection. Mm. I mean, I remember going to the, the, 
the first show I saw after, you know, the first time the London theatres tried to reopen after the first lockdown in, I think it was September that year, 2020, I went to the bridge to see um, Monica Dolan, I think, in one of those Alan Aitborn... Alan Bennett. Alan Bennett, sorry. My old brain. Um, Alan Bennett, yeah, Talking Heads, yeah. yeah. And she, and it was, you know, it was funny and it was droll and we were all, everyone was super, super nervous and everyone was masked up to, you know, double masked and everyone was sanitising their hands every five seconds and they'd taken half the seats out so everyone was miles apart and we all sat there in the dark, miles apart, masked up and she said something funny and this, I heard this sound go around the dark auditorium, this sort of ripple of laughter and I nearly burst into tears because I thought that is what theatre is and that's why I love it I've never gotten over that I love it it was interesting I did a a show um, in between the lockdown so at the end of that summer that we'd sort of been let off a bit just before the the October November lockdown I did a show in Bath and um, the audience were socially distanced they wore masks they had to test I've not I'm not sure if testing was the, I can't remember the, the nature of it at that stage, but it was it was pretty hardcore, the regime, before they were allowed into the theatre and then they were led in single file and people weren't really allowed to use the loos, I think, during the yeah. show. And I mean, it was the commitment to going to that event, I think, was more laudable and extraordinary than anything that three of us did on stage. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it, I found that incredibly moving. And as you say, it was a reminder of... There's a need for it and that it's healing and that you realise how much you missed it. And I've said on the podcast before, the first couple of shows that I went to after lockdown, I I just cried. Because it is that thing, it's that togetherness. And and even when we were doing Manor at Christmas... You know, and people were stopping coming because it was, you know, Christmas and, and, and the numbers were zooming up at a, you yeah. know, quite terrifying rate. And understandably, audience were not coming even when they'd bought tickets. And so when we as a cast were applauding the audience at the curtain call to say thank you so much for being here, because it's it's brave and it's nerve wracking. And because you think I'm in a warm, dark space, breathing and being breathed over when there's this massive virus in the air, yeah. that even if I don't get ill, I could give to somebody yeah. else. And that's that's a yeah, thing it was to quite, carry it on your we, we had, I think, we had a new rule about was the, was that show worth dying for? <laughs> <laughs> like the ultimate five stars, you know, do I have to go? I remember we all, I, I agreed, I think, with uh, Susanna Clough, uh, Robert Lafarge's Seven Streams of the River Otter was worth dying for. And that was just before everything closed down. That was Betrayal at Bath, was, was it? Yeah, betrayal? Yeah. yeah. And I had a really weird experience on this, just, just uh, with audiences. And this is the other great thing about audiences. I think people sometimes underestimate that kind of lovely casual social interaction of it so I just sat down and I was on my own and I come down in the train and I sat down and a woman next to me who wasn't masked and I was masked and she wasn't masked and um and I was kind of all ready to prickle up and be very upset and then she just said I've had the most terrible row with my husband oh no (laughs) 
<laughs> because he won't come to the theatre because he thinks he's going to die and I just want to be here. I just want to see this play. And and, and it was kind of... And so I find myself sort of doing this kind of soothing, psychotherapeutic marriage counselling, saying, yeah. I'm sure you can make it up. She said, no, I think it's going to be the end. He voted for Brexit. I didn't. And so oh, we got this whole thing. But I love that. That's the other thing about going to the theatre. It is those chance interactions with people. Yes, I, yes. You know, I never have met this woman yeah. except that we'd just chosen both to go to see Betrayal. Her obviously feeling it was a reflection of her own life, possibly. Oh, dear. Um, but, you know, and I, I, I do um, I do love that as well. You get the bonding in the audience. That's that's the thing that's so lovely. And I think there's... A, I remember some playwright saying to me, sorry, playwright, <laughs> I've forgotten the name, um, but saying, you know, you can w- walk into an empty cinema, there's nothing. You walk into an empty theatre and there's... It's, it's, you can feel it the yeah. potential there and when I mean I will go to the theatre very happily on my own but I feel less inclined to go to the cinema it's interesting There's, and I think it's because it's live and they're doing it in front of you and you have this when it goes really really well you have a bond between the actor and the audience but also between the audience and the audience I mean I think it's Oscar Eustace the the artistic director of the public theatre in New York who said you know a really good show the audience goes in as strangers and comes out as a community yeah and it's that sort of sense. And I remember seeing Kenneth Cranham in The fa- Father oh, yeah. and the very incredibly moving play about dementia. And at the end, I looked around and I, I realised I was holding my breath and everyone yeah. was holding their breath. Um, but on the other, at the other end of the scale, I remember seeing um, a Dario Faux farce up in Edinburgh and it was the old Travis Theatre. And they had these benches with no ends, you know, sort yeah. of at the end. And there was, it was very, very funny. And there was a woman who was in such hysterics, she kept falling on the floor. So she would <laughs> laugh and laugh and, and she'd sort of go, she'd sort of go, and she'd fall on the floor and she'd get up and sit back down again and then she'd be off again. And the whole audience, I mean, the actors were trying really hard not to corpse because it was just so funny. The the play was very funny. The whole situation was funny. And the whole audience kind of went up in like in a helium balloon. We all floated out of there on a sort of high yeah. because that's what you can get in it when it works well. You know, yeah. it's it's not just moving. It can just be hilarious. Yeah. I love but it that. is. What's interesting, though, from my point of view as a as a performer and as it also as a mutually um, passionate member of the theatre-going community. When I look at criticism and the nature of reviewers and the nature of journalists who are attached to sort of theatre-making practice, on one, end of the, on one end of the scale you have the interviews and the, the sort of previews, so, you know, going along articles that are being written while something's being rehearsed. So you'll, you might have the artistic director, you might have the director, you might have performers, you might have people who are generally involved. So it becomes a sort of form of advertisement. Yeah. And this is really exciting and it opens this. So there's no, there's no critical nature to it. Oh, it's an interest piece. And then you have... More regional um, periodicals and uh, papers and the way that they criticise either local pieces or, you know, uh, visiting productions, touring productions. And they tend to be more gentle uh, and they're saying this is going on and this is what it's about and this is where it's come from and this is how much you expect to pay and it's a lovely day out for the family or fantastic... um, you know, take with these brilliant actors and it hasn't been done for 10 years, whatever it is. It's a, it's a very gentle overview, pa- 
perhaps with a sort of, you know, one line or whatever, you know, depending on the nature of the writer and how ambitious they are. Um, and then you get into a sort of higher end of criticism and the bigger papers and online reviewers and then critics uh, of note, which of course includes you guys. And then you have a sort of journalistic expectation about taste and individual taste, which includes the sort of encyclopedic knowledge about every other production of this piece or every all the work that the central actors have done running up to this particular you know, production or involvement with a particular director. Um, and then those opinions become, I would say, from my outside point of view, sort of almost separate to the production. So it's not necessarily in support of the arts. It is, is more about the paper and about the critic and about their knowledge and their taste and their opinion. And there are then the more extreme version of that in terms of since I've been an actor like de Jong, uh, you know. And Nicholas de Jong, he was stand-up. Was he evening standard, yeah. Nicholas de Jong, yeah. And how extreme his opinions could be and i mean and you know there are there is some of that and it's not it's not the general uh feeling of most critics but you but those voices do exist and you know famously on broadway critics can close a show overnight so my my question is where do you feel that that extreme, very individualistic, very personal voice, very often very critical voice, sits within the, our practitioner's world and particularly in the state that it's in at the moment. What do you think the role of negative criticism has? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, for me, what, I mean, maybe it's a bit idealistic, but I feel that criticism as a sort of whole should really be in conversation with this. So it should be something that, you know, people are putting things, and this did ha happen quite a lot during the pandemic, actually. I think there was a, a real realisation that we needed each other yeah. and um, that people who were writing about theatre um, were trying to keep the flame alive quite a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I feel that it should be, for me, the sort of the sort of criticism I admire is sort of quite constructive. So right. you're not you're not just rubbishing things because a that's quite a short you know there's quite a short shelf life on that sort of thing. If you just rubbish everything, you know, people will probably stop believing you, and things aren't aren't that bad. Um, I mean, I, I, that for me, that's what criticism should be, and there should be. You have an opinion, but you know, you really should justify it, mm -hmm. and you should be sort of making it clear how you arrived at it. And for, I think that ideally, a review should be very, you know, should give everyone a really good description of what it's like, what it feels like, what it looks like, what you know, what the what the themes are, what's going on in it, and then you you know through that whether you felt it worked or not so that someone reading it can go I see well she really liked it but I don't think that's for me 
you know because i think you ought to be able to read it and go right that sounds great i'm going to go or mm, still doesn't sound like my thing i don't know i'm not sure if i'm answering your question yeah, i think nobody. the i think the sort of extreme the most extreme versions which we don't have quite so much anymore i'm not sure that yeah. there's anyone who can close things down is there <laughs> <No, laughs> anyone can close things down um, but i, I think um, i well that's not my style there is a, a sort of role for it i suppose and if you know that person's very strict then you go if they do give a five star review you're going to go wow yeah i think there's very few things that are so terrible that they you know i mean very little gets onto the stage that doesn't have intelligence and, and something sort of thought in it you know we were like, talking about this this morning because we we're both teaching a, a criticism module in um at bard and um it, it it is interesting because it makes you makes you think you know so this morning we we have to get people who are not actually going to be theatre reviews but they they write a review as part of their um stay in britain um, they're American students. And one of the interesting things that um, so you start to look at is that there are two meanings of the word critic. And I always start off by saying that to them. So one is is sort of, um, you know, criticise, actually sort of be rude about, you know, actually really pick holes in. Yeah. And the other is judgment, which is a slightly different thing. And you're saying, here I am, I'm a member of the audience, I'm here in a role as, as your reviewer with all my knowledge and all my passion and everything I can bring to it. And what you do, I think, again, why Sarah and I do get on is that we both have the same view that you paint a picture of what you've seen. And then somewhere within that, because you're on the side of the audience, you you make a judgment as to what you thought because you hope that your reader will know you well enough to know whether they will agree with you or they won't. I mean, so famously, one of the things I, I have actually put in reviews is, you know, famously, I hate mime. I mean, I love dance and I hate mime. I don't know why that is. Yeah. I'm not good with mime. Sarah's rather good with mime. But the, the, the London International Mime Festival, which starts every January, yeah. they kind of dread my approach. <laughs> Just wondering what you would have made of my, my ghost in Hamlet, actually. <laughs> But then when I love something in that, I mean, I think that anybody who, who knows even the tiniest bit about me, or I might even say, you know, normally I hate mine, but God, this was good. And I, I think um, that, that tradition of the critic being somebody you knew and whose judgment you trusted and followed, even if you didn't agree with, is quite an interesting one. Yeah, I also think, I mean, I have a phrase that, well, I say when I'm talking to the students but I feel this is sort of my well it's my it's supposed to be my philosophy I hope I live by it but which is you walk towards the play you walk towards it you sort of so rather than go oh you've got a load of furniture upside down on stage huh you said well why what mm. you know let me try and understand what you're doing let me really see if it speaks you know if it's work you know working for me and really I, I think it's important to grapple with that and really yeah. be you know really work with it yeah, really not sort resist. of not resist and also not just look for easy I mean point scoring which I just think um, I really don't like I mean in the bigger bigger scenario I think there are things I would say this wouldn't I because of what I do but I think criticism or writing about theatre um, can be useful because you can pick up all sorts, you know, the, you can pick up the trends, you can pick up, you know, you you can, as you say, um, say, well, this is a huge change of, of, of uh, tactic from this writer, you know, this is completely fresh, you know. Um, mm. Famously, Carol Churchill, every time she writes a play, writes a, a completely new form, you know, it's mm. a, she's astonishing like that. Yeah. So you can see that, you can see if there are lots of people writing about... Um, 
climate change, say, or, um, you know, personal identity or, uh, you know, you can see themes coming through. You can see things that are preoccupying people in the world and the way theatre is responding to that. And, you know, the, the big trends that have moved. Do you remember going to when immersive theatre was new? Yeah, yeah. And um, people started to notice that there's this extraordinary kind of wave of immersive drama that puts people in the world of the play sweeping across theatre. So I think that's one of the things that you can do is is, is is be part of the conversation say look this 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 is happening in you know over here and this is happening over here and they're both kind of talking about the same thing mm-hmm. i mean for me at the moment on stage there are there's one strand of people who are really taking on the divisiveness of our current current world and the toxic nature of that yeah. of polarization. So you see it in the Doctor with Juliet Stevenson. You saw it in the it's Narcissist the take, that Christopher yeah. Shin did. You see it in Good, the revival of Good. You know, people taking on that. And then there are also people who I think are doing something different, which is saying I'm going to provide an antidote. So I would put my neighbour Totoro and the band's visit, which is on uh, the Donmar. I would put those in that sort of area of people trying to sort of bring something that is the, yes, the antidote to that sort Mm. of spiky, divisive public debate. So, and I think as a critic, hopefully, if you've seen enough of them, you can spot that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, and even, as you say, reviews that, that include a sort of less positive opinion if it's done with a a self-awareness and uh calling yourself out you know like drawing attention to the fact that i don't like mime or (laughs) this isn't you know in the past i've struggled with x you know whatever it is but if it's done with that self-awareness then it has a level of neutrality that it is a sort of it's a letter to a a potential audience and I think that from 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 my point of view and I think it it would be very easy as a performer to feel defensive in the face of two critics Um, but (laughs) you're doing very well thank you so much (laughs) I've pat myself on the back um, I think you know the 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 thing that can sometimes feel like it's been forgotten in the excitement of writing about something and really, you know, getting excited about a few sound bites or, you know, the, a turn of phrase, it loses its way in the neutrality of that love letter from the theatre to an audience, to yeah. a potential mm. audience. Yeah. And ultimately, theatre can't exist without audiences. No. And particularly at the moment. And I think the responsibility on some level falls to the press mm. because you know but, but that includes social media that includes yeah. marketing that includes interviews that includes everything and the, the 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 problem that i think that covid posed that we're still sort of working out the parameters of is that that we were separated yeah. that our community was disparate and and in that time people had a lot of thinking time mm-hmm. you know and and they we've come back with you know, I've had some time to think about this and actually this isn't okay anymore. Or I've had some time to think about this and actually I think it's a, this conversation is long overdue and whilst it started in the 70s, it's still, there are problems that haven't been solved. You know, whatever it is. But we need we need people to come and we need, and so I think what you're saying, which I've, I think is glorious about the nature of it being a conversation and the nature of self-awareness and the nature of 
support for something that ultimately, when it's good, is magic. Mm-hmm. And there isn't anything like it. You know, it is is occasionally forgotten. And I think as as a theatre practitioner, that's the bit that we find hard yeah. to stomach. I think I think it's important to remember. I mean, you know, it is your opinion. Yeah. And if you confuse your opinion with fact, then you're in real. You know, you're in trouble. I mean, you know, yes, it's your your opinion, and you you but you should back it up. But if you start to think that you're right, yeah. I mean, nobody's right Right. about a piece of theatre. I mean, you you can't be right, you know. And and of course, it's one of the great things that you come out of something and you love it, it blew you away, and someone else will come out and go, that's me cold, you know. It just didn't work for me. And and we are in the middle of that. And what we're trying to do is just sort of, I suppose, um, analyse why you know why why we landed where we landed and yeah. then you know everyone you know other people have it's good that there's a range of voices that's very important and the, the and range, of voice, range of voices i yeah. do think that's true in the british press that is yeah. the distinguishing factor should be between, wider i mean there are wider. not enough people of yeah. color writing yeah. i mean it's certainly not in the national press there are no. more women than there used to be women have but yes definitely. you know I think that's right. It should be wider in the, the range of voices. I slightly, I, the one thing I do think, and I think criticism often gets caught up in um, the the pressures of newspapers sometimes yeah, as yeah. well. I mean, you know, the FT is has uh, runs the most brilliant team of critics in all disciplines and takes criticism incredibly seriously, which is, you know, one reason um, that it, you know, it has such a great reputation. Yeah. Um, the, you know, other papers do that as well. But sometimes, you know, people who maybe didn't necessarily start off loving theatre might be asked to write about it. And that introduces a whole new set of things. Yeah. But I do also think that the, the, the as a critic, it is only your view, but you have to be on the side of the audience as well. You have to. I like Sarah's idea of walking towards it, but you have to say, actually, for me, you know, if you're going to spend your 80, 30 quid, yeah. that one didn't quite work. That's a kind of balancing act that you're walking as a critic because you are sometimes, um, especially musicals, in my opinion, get hyped. And that's another problem that you're trying to walk with. So in order to sell themselves, obviously they say they're utterly brilliant. And of course, all the preview pieces will suggest that. And, and some people may adore them. I mean, Back to the Future was a show I had reservations about, but I know audiences actually have really, really laughed. Yeah. Um, so you're, but you're trying to, you're trying to walk all those kind of lines as well. And I think it's the seriousness of your intent that in the end counts. Mm. That, that will be my, I think if you take criticism seriously, then yeah. kind of like you're allowed to do anything in the theatre and essentially you're allowed to do anything in criticism. I, that's kind of always been my guiding light. One of the other things about writing, I mean, as Sarah and I are, you know, both... Um, no, mature critic. <laughs> We're not the half fair. Not very, not very <laughs> much on. But you have to sort of also watch yourself because obviously you change. You, I mean, and every single one of us is, you know, as we're very aware, we come out of our own lived experience. We have a very different lived experience to a lot of other people. And, you know, you arrive in the theatre with all your, you know, and sometimes it's, you know, that's one of the reasons it gets very emotional because something's just happened in your life. And, you know, I sat behind a lady 
comedian and Alan Akebourne comedy once, and she sobbed all the way through the first half. <laughs> yeah. Went away at the interval, and I thought, well, she's surely gone home. She came back and sobbed all the way through the second half. It was obviously really, Exotic. you know, so there is that as well. So yeah. you have to always, you know, it's, a, it's as Sarah said, it's a constant balancing act. And, and I think audiences can tell you a lot. You can really tell if a play is working if the audience is really quiet or it's really buzzing, yes. or they're talking, even if they, yeah. even if they perhaps didn't go for all of it, they're talking. And yeah, but there is, and of course, the other big tricky thing is that people want different things out of theatre. Some people just want to go and see a movie they love on the stage, and that's what they want. Mm. And you know, why not? And it's that that's also very tricky. You know, it's, uh, so you're just sort of juggling all these balls all the time and mostly dropping them. <laughs> I, I think so. I think to try and sort of put it together, I think the thing that I most regret in my in the course of my journalistic career laughingly called I I, I, <laughs> I, I, when I started out people in the generation before me like Harold Hobson who I think is a, an interesting critic were allowed the luxury of going back to see a show again so Hobson famously got the birthday party wrong, wrong. but he went back and he looked at it again and he said actually I was wrong and this is I think that's right that he, this is a great show Yeah, um, John Peter we've talked about before when yeah, he yeah. saw Charleston Ian Charleston in Hamlet re-reviewed it you know was allowed to say that this is this most amazing thing that's happened yeah. And what I most regret is that critics who are passionate about theatre and who do see themselves as part of the conversation in the art don't quite often get that time mm. yeah. just to go and have another look, come up with another view. One, could I say just like this one thing? And that, um, actually, there's two things. One thing I think that we should come back to and maybe have another conversation is how hard it is to write it well about performance. Yeah. So that thing's incredibly hard. Yeah. Really hard. And the other thing, but one of the things we haven't touched on, and that is that you are trying to be a writer. And so one of the, you're trying to measure yourself against a show. You're trying to really understand what you feel about it. You're trying to paint a picture and be really vivid. But you're also trying to write well, as you know, and that is hard, you know, to actually, um, you know, to, to sort of write a vivacious piece of writing, hopefully. Yeah. Something that, you know, buttonholes somebody and says, come and listen to this because, you know, you want to see this show. And this is why. And let me, you know... Use my use my language to convince yeah, you, and that's that another that's, another aspect. Gosh, of it. all we've done in this podcast is come up with ideas for other podcasts. So we do one on writing and one on so how Sarah got into national journalism. No, you don't but. really want to know about that. <laughs> <laughs> it was John Higgins at the Times. Uh, no, I'm safe. sorry. There was a sort of weird. There was a play, um, a Carl Kraus play at the Edinburgh Festival that the Glasgow citizens were doing and nobody really knew anything about it. I knew a teaspoonful about it, which was more than anybody else. So somebody said to me, why don't you write to all the national press and see if they'll take a feature? And I was like, don't be silly. And they want something from me. And they said, no, go on. And so I did. Most of them didn't answer. Some of them said, thanks, but no thanks. And John Higgins, the arts editor at The Times, who was really believed in bringing on young people, said, well, send me something you've written. So I sent him an article I'd written about the tattoo, <laughs> the yeah. Edinburgh tattoo. Oh, lovely. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, OK, write me a feature. And then he said, write, write some more for me. And he and gave me... Star Wars um, born. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I owe, I owe him. And that is, I mean, that's... When I do talk to people who say, you know, what I 
how do I get into doing things like that? So number one, do it, because that's what we did with the list. We just did it. We were dirt poor. We slept under the desks. We, you know, we sort of like, we were all sleep starved. Um, but it was the most fabulous fun. We learned so, so much. And the other thing is don't be afraid to knock on doors because sometimes they open. And you never know the one that's going to. And, yeah. you know, I'm so indebted to him. He was sort of, he was just totally into opera. And I, he would have conversations to, with me that were completely mystifying. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he gave me a chance, you know. He gave me a... Because yeah. he believed in bringing on young people. And I was at that point young. Which is a nice note to end on. Um, Sarah, <laughs> thank you so thank much. You. Totally brilliant. And, you know, from bananas to doors opening. It's been lovely. Thank you ever so much. It's goodbye from me the critic and goodbye from me the actress and goodbye from me the supernumerary critic <laughs> <laughs>